Hello and welcome to a new episode of Thinking Out Loud. My name is Riyaz Safi. Please show some love by subscribing to the podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode when it's posted. For the first time since the peak of the second COVID-19 wave in December, South Africa has breached the 5,000 mark for daily infections. This was the startling data that emerged when the National Department of Health daily statistics on new infections and death showed that over 5,000 new cases were reported. In light of a third wave hitting South Africa on today's episode of Thinking Out Loud, I chat to leading infectious diseases ophthalmologist and ask some pertinent questions regarding the vaccine and COVID-19. Should I be vaccinated if I already had COVID? What has COVID-19 highlighted about the healthcare system? Who should get the COVID vaccine? Professor uh, Salim Abdul Karim, welcome to Thinking Out Loud. So welcome. Thank you very much, Riaz. It's a great pleasure to be with you here today. It certainly is my pleasure to have you and such a great honor indeed. Now let's uh, begin. Uh, you've become quite a celebrity in the South African space in that everyone uh, knows about you since the COVID-19 has uh, begun about a year and some months back right here in South Africa. Tell us about your involvement with the COVID-19 advisory committee to the government and what was your experience like? So it was back in... Uh on the 30th of December, I was on vacation in the Drakensberg Mountains and my watch gave me an alert. I have a little eye watch. And in the alert, it talked about cases of pneumonia in a Chinese town called Wuhan. I looked at it and said, oh, it can't be anything important. And I just ignored it. I just literally turned it off. And little did I know that the situation was going to change. And on the 11th of January, we learned about the sequence of the virus and we realized we are now dealing with a very serious situation. So by the middle of February, we had you know, changed the laboratory, we partitioned it off, we started doing COVID testing. This was at a time when we didn't even have a single case of COVID in South Africa. Mm-hmm. We communicated with our colleagues in China who sent us reagents, and we were up and running doing COVID testing. So come the beginning of March, on the 5th, when the first case was reported, we were already actively involved in doing COVID research. And so when the minister asked me to join a meeting on the 23rd of March, uh, where there were about 60, 50, 60 scientists. And in that meeting uh, was basically asking, you know, are the scientists in a position to help and advise the government uh, about this new disease? And uh, I was among many others, and most of us are HIV researchers. We all know each other. We collaborate with each other extensively. And so it was nothing unusual. And uh, at the end of the meeting, uh, he announced, uh, no, the director general at the time, you know, announced at the end of the meeting that I was going to be the overarching chair of this committee. Wow. And... Uh, 
I mean, he didn't need to ask me because uh, I was going to say yes anyway. I considered it my duty to take on this responsibility. And so I did. And I have to say that being part of a committee of people who really have been incredible to work with, and uh, most of the scientists, you know, are are really well-meaning. They are deeply committed. They work hard. And... They did what it took. And in, in the one year or so that I was on the committee, we I monitored all the advice that we gave. We uh, released 119 advisories. And of those advisories, uh, 119 in total, the government uh, didn't accept only four of them. All the others have been acted on, if not completely acted on, at least partially acted on. So we're very really pleased that you know our advice was useful, was heeded mostly, and I think contributed to overall the good track record that we have. And you know, we South is widely regarded as having dealt with COVID in a very positive way and in a way that has minimized loss of life. So I think uh, for me, it has been an honor. It has been uh, an education in many instances because we had to learn very quickly about this new virus. Yes. But mostly I felt it was my duty to the people of our country. Now, COVID-19 is something that happens once in a hundred years. The Spanish flu is something that happened in the 1920s uh, that had the same devastating effect. Uh, Of course, COVID-19 seems like it's worst. Where is South Africa in dealing with this gone wrong as well? Because, I mean, we're now in a third wave as we speak. You know, I've been dealing with uh, epidemics and pandemics you know, for now, for over 35 years, I investigated uh, the first, my first epidemic was in the 1980s, mid 1980s, an epidemic of measles. Uh, And I remember briefing the Minister of Health during the apartheid era. Her name was Rina Fenter. She asked us to come to Parliament in Cape Town, so I flew to Parliament to brief her on my findings on the measles epidemic. And since then, I have studied a lot of epidemics and I've chaired our country's polio expert committee that led to declaring South Africa had eliminated polio. I've been involved in doing research on the TB situation, on HIV, of course. So, You know, we have in this country an amazing group of scientists who have spent many years studying these infectious diseases and have very substantial uh, experience in how to deal with that. So South Africa in many ways is blessed in that regard. When we look at, you know, where we stand in the COVID situation, I think we have to appreciate that COVID-19 came to us 
after two very clear warning bells. The first was in 2002, when we had an outbreak of a coronavirus from bats that infected civets and then came into humans. It was called SARS coronavirus, right? SARS. Yes. Then we had the next coronavirus, also from bats, which infected camels and then infected humans and was called MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And now we have SARS coronavirus 2. So we already had two warning bells, one in 2012, one in 2013. And now in 2020, 2019, we get the third. So we've, we've always known that these coronaviruses hold a big threat to us. What we're now understanding is the full extent of that threat. Now in both SARS-CoV-1 and MERS, they were able to contain those epidemics. So they didn't really spread too far. But SARS-CoV-2 is showing us what a global pandemic can do. And this, we all work on the understanding that bats have thousands of coronaviruses. And so we have to expect we're gonna get more. It's just a matter of time before we see the next, you know, uh, coronavirus from bats. And if it's not a coronavirus, you know, we'll see something else, maybe an influenza pandemic or maybe some other virus coming around. So it tells us that there is no room for complacency. We have to be ready to deal with any of these infectious agents that could become a global pandemic. And so our pandemic preparedness needs to become a major part of what we focus on you know, when we're done in dealing with uh, SARS-CoV-2. I must thank you for that explanation because sitting here and listening to you give that explanation, it really does make sense now um, when you, you chat about that because I must be honest with you, and I think with the increase in social media, there's a lot of conspiracies doing the round. I mean, on a daily basis, I'm sent messages to say that, you know, this was created in the lab and spread, etc. What is your message to those people that are spreading such, uh, such fake news? When I think back yes, to the first description of a virus that later was known and given the name HIV, mm-hmm. when I first learned about those cases, of uh, Kaposi's sarcoma and pneumocystis pneumonia. And we didn't know what was causing it, right? We didn't even know if it was a virus, actually, at the time. Mm. The gay men in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York were coming down with this disease. And it looked like it was infectious, but we didn't really know. And I just think now, what if there was social media at that time? <laughs> you know, I, we would have, we already, even without social media, had every kind of conspiracy about HIV. In, in COVID-19, social media has amplified that. 
it has now become, uh, you know, such a, a cacophony of noises from various people. And the thing about social media is that any idiot can write anything they want to. There's, there's no requirement to be truthful or even to be even coherent. So what we have in essence now is for those who want to believe what they read in social media, they have to accept that they, the, the, that there is no curation of that information. The validity of that information must always be in question. You cannot take any of it for granted. And if we don't, then we will get enticed with conspiracy theories. Now, what I have learned is that in South Africa, as the cases go up, as they are doing right now, as the cases go up and we get towards, you know, get above the 5,000 cases per day and heading towards 10,000 cases per day, people become very anxious. They now get concerned. Yes. They also get to a point where they know people who've got COVID, family members, friends, work colleagues. There are now a lot of people with COVID. They start getting more and more anxious. Now, the more anxious they get, the more they want to know who's making me sick. <laughs> Not what is making me sick, but who is? who is behind this? I can't believe that this is just occurring by nature. There has to be some greater uh, you know, plan here. Somebody is trying to do this to us. So they become susceptible to conspiracy theories. And so it, it helps them, it helps make the world when people are anxious, it helps give meaning to what's going on in the world. Even if it's nonsense, it just helps them get meaning. So, yeah. yeah, I'm just used to that. I'm used to people clutching at straws and they will come up with all kinds of theories. And of course, uh, powerful people and wealthy people like Bill Gates, you know, will feature on that. Uh, people like, uh, you know, like the U.S. government or the CIA or the Russians or the Chinese scientists. I mean, every kind of conspiracy you will see. But that is not the only thing that happens when people become anxious. When they become anxious and they become worried and they get concerned, uh, and they're watching people around them getting sick, that's when they want a miracle cure. They want to know, where is my miracle cure? Right? In the first wave, I dealt with the miracle cure very extensively. People were clamoring, saying, where's the hydroxychloroquine? Where is it? Why are you not giving it to us? You know it works. It will save us. 
where's our hydroxychloroquine? Even the president of the U.S. is saying this is a miracle cure. So as that died down, they said, oh, where's this artemisinin? This artemisinin, the one that the president of Madagascar is putting in bottles and giving everybody, and they don't have COVID in Madagascar. Right? So we know both of that was just nonsense, right? The hydroxychloroquine was just nonsense. It proved to be have no effect. Yes. People wasted a lot of money and research to show that it had no effect. The artemisinin has no effect. In the second wave, I had to deal with ivermectin. Right? Where's our ivermectin? We want our medical cure. And you tell them there's no evidence. You know, you're clutching at straws. There's no evidence. It doesn't work until we know that there's clear-cut evidence. And, of course, studies have now been released that show that ivermectin does not work in mild cases of COVID-19. Now, there are several studies still underway to show, to look at whether it works in severe COVID, but it doesn't work in mild COVID. So, you know, people, I can understand that people want to have their miracle cure, right? And this time around, I'm sure it's going to be, where's my vaccine? Where's my vaccine? No, there aren't vaccines, right? The whole world is looking for vaccines, and we know that there's a shortage, and we'll get our vaccines in due course, and yes. you know we'll have to just deal with that in this coming wave. Interesting, interesting indeed. I just love the way you put that. Uh, so, yes, uh, I guess we're all looking for the answers, but this is something that comes, like you said, once uh, in 100 years, and, of course, uh, we need to be better prepared for this. Now, something that stands out for me uh, from what you've just spoken about, also people and their behavior uh, makes a difference to how this disease spreads. You're absolutely correct. I think the way in which you look at this um, uh, pandemic, you know, just like with HIV, uh, it is heavily influenced by our behavior. Uh, you know, most infectious diseases are influenced by our behavior, some more than others. And if you look at COVID-19, we have seen countries that have been able to maintain the epidemic at a, at a level where it doesn't pose any threat. I mean, the classic cases being New Zealand and Vietnam, where they just haven't seen, uh, you know, the epidemic in any real way. They've seen small outbreaks. Situation might be changing in Vietnam because they've seen a bit of an outbreak now. But there are countries that have been able to do that. And they're able to do that for a few reasons, uh, one of which is behavior, another of which is that they close their borders. So they just shut the, you know, the whole country down. And, of course, it's a lot easier to do that when you're an island than it is to do that when you're connected, as we are, to all our neighboring countries. So we have to accept that that's going to occur. But also, we pretty much know what is protective. And the, the interventions we know like mask wearing, like focusing on staying outdoors as much as possible, 
uh, on uh, ensuring that you maintain your social distance and so on, we know they are highly effective. You know, there are many studies that show that these are highly effective in protecting our populations. So the challenge is to get people to follow the rules. And that's been a problem. It's been a major problem. Yes. It's been a problem that's not new to COVID. So let's just make that clear. Right? South Africa has the worst HIV epidemic in the world. And yet we know what prevents HIV. We still have you know, very high rates of new HIV infections, even though we know how to prevent it through our behavior. Mm-hmm. We just can't get people to follow the rules and right? to follow the prevention, to take the prevention. Now, it's easy to just blame people. And that does, that's not helpful and it's not actually accurate because it's not only about individuals and their own decision-making. It's also about how we can, as a society, encourage others to make the right decisions. It is, in, in, in many ways, COVID-19 has highlighted for us how much we are interdependent, how much your behavior influences whether I'm going to get COVID. Because if you are risky, you will put me at risk. You'll put me at risk in public transport. You'll put me at risk if I stay with you. You'll put me at risk if I work with you. So your behavior is not, is not just influencing your risk. You're influencing all our risk. So in many ways, we as a society have to take responsibility. Not just we as individuals. We as individuals need to make the right decisions but we also need our society to help us make the right decisions. And there are many ways in which we can do that. Setting the right example, ensuring that, you know, we do everything in our power to support and help others uh, through this time. But fundamentally, that we begin to understand each other better. And that, we appreciate each other and each of our roles and understand that through our collectiveness only can we keep this virus at bay. And I think that that's going to be a challenge. And Mm -hmm. people say, oh, no, I'd rather just wait for a vaccine. I'm sorry to tell you, the vaccine is not going to be enough. There are new variants coming up all the time. So even if we had a vaccine, you would still need to take some precautions. So we can't look at it that there's some magic wand that's going to wave away this virus and that, you know, we can go and just do whatever we want. I think it's given us that, uh, that, that, uh, that opportunity to reflect on who we are as a people who we are as a community and who we are as individuals. Yes, it's all about 
you, you and the community as well. So make sure that you, from time to time, look at your own behavior as well. So it certainly makes a big difference uh, to all those listening right now. Now, there's a lot of things that have been going around, like we spoke earlier. I'd like to demystify some misconceptions uh, that people have about the vaccine. So let's first start off with who should get the vaccine? When I was asked in April last year, you know, when can we expect a vaccine? And I said, oh, that will take a few years. And uh, I, you know, I've spent my life the last 30 odd years working on HIV vaccines. So I know how difficult it is to make vaccines. So the fact that we already have effective vaccines within a year is just absolutely amazing to me. It, it reflects just the level of scientific uh, uh, innovation and commitment that has given us effective vaccines. And these vaccines are not just vaccines that are you know, available. They are highly effective and they're very safe, which is, again, quite unusual. It is not common that we would make a vaccine that quickly. And on top of all of that, to make a vaccine that's so effective, you know, when you take the Pfizer vaccine at 95% effective, that's about, that's as good as the best existing vaccine that we have. The best existing vaccine we have which would be a vaccine, something like the measles vaccine, which is around that sort of 95% effective. So that just tells you that in less than a year, not only did we make a vaccine, but we made one of the most powerful and effective vaccines that we've had in all time. Now, it won't help having vaccines if they're not in people's arms. We've got to make sure that the vaccines go from where they, you know, from the idea and the effective trials that were done. We've got to get those vaccines and we've got to put them in arms because when you do that, then you see the benefits. And the benefits uh, for some vaccines, you know, is that they prevent all infections, or almost not all, but they prevent almost all infections. So a very high proportion of infections are prevented. In other vaccines, uh, not all vaccines, not all vir uh, infections are prevented. So you will still see some breakthrough infections, um, more than, than the more effective mRNA vaccines. So we, we have to expect that we will see those. But in effect, we have highly effective and safe vaccines, and no one should be hesitant. This is a vaccine that would be effective in almost every person. Right now, we don't yet have safety information from clinical trials in young people. For most of the vaccines have been tested in adults over the age of 18. And adults over the age of 18 are the ones that are at highest risk uh, compared to children. So, so vaccinating children is not a high priority. But amongst those that are over 18, the highest risk 
for disease. In other words, when you get infected, the highest risk of getting a severe form of COVID-19 is in those who are above the age of 60. So age is your most important criteria for what's the chance that you will get severe disease, end up in hospital, require ventilation, and even run the risk of dying. So age is really, really important. It's your most important predictor. Then comes comorbidities like diabetes, hypertension. But most of the people with diabetes and hypertension are over 50. There are some below 50, uh, uh, sorry, over 60, but most of them are above 60. So if you vaccinate everybody over 60, you capture a very high proportion of people. And when you take how they did it, for example, in New York, when I was there a few weeks ago, they started off vaccinating all the healthcare workers. Then they went to above 60, and then they just kept going down. So when they finished, or most of the over 60s were done, they went to over 50. So everyone who's over 50 now can come in, and then they go to over 40. And that's a very simple, pragmatic, easy way to capture most of the population that is at highest risk of getting severe forms of the disease. If compared to the normal flu shot, will, will I have COVID symptoms once I take the vaccine? Depending on which vaccine you take, the, the kinds of side effects and symptoms of reactogenicity that you have will vary. What we know, and I'll just refer mostly now to the Pfizer vaccine that's being given out at the vaccination sites as we speak, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which was given to our healthcare workers. So if we look at those two vaccines, which are going to be the main two vaccines we give out in this country, uh, both of them give you a reactogenicity, which you can reasonably predict. Right? If you take either of those vaccines, you will have a bit of muscle pain, you'll feel tired, you might have a bit of chills, and you might have a headache. So those are the common features. They all resolve within about 48 hours or so. And you know, I routinely recommend when people call me up, oh, I'm getting side effects. I said, it's very simple. Just take some ibuprofen. You know, it's a good anti-inflammatory. It'll just reduce the, the headache and so on. And most of them just do well just on that. So you have to expect that there will be side effects because if you don't get side effects, that means you haven't reacted, right? Remember, part of the role of the vaccine is to enable your immune response to get primed, right? You, you're giving a part of this virus to somebody. It's a very small part of the virus, a little piece of it that is dead and can't cause any infection, but you're giving it so the body reacts to it. And so when you come across the real virus, your body is ready. It knows how to deal with this virus. Mm -hmm. So when you get this little piece of the virus in the vaccine, 
you have to expect that you will mount an immune response. And when you mount an immune response, you have to expect that you will get some reactogenicity, some side effects. And they, they are mild and they really you know, go away quite quickly. Should I be vaccinated if I already had COVID? If you have COVID, if you've already had COVID, yes, you should get vaccinated. There are two reasons for that. The first is that natural infection, especially when it's mild, has waning immunity. The immunity wanes over time. So you need to get a vaccine shot to boost that initial natural infection. The second is that when you get natural infection, the body generates a whole range of different antibodies against the virus. And when you boost with a vaccine, then the particularly important antibodies, which are those against something called the spike protein, they are boosted and you get a very high level of those antibodies. And when that happens, you are quite well protected against COVID-19. Now, the one thing is that people who've had past infection, uh, they do well just with a single dose of vaccine. They don't really require a second dose of the vaccine. At this point, we are giving everybody two doses of the vaccine because it's just too long and complicated to test people for past infection. So it's just simpler for us to just give everybody two doses. Mm -hmm. But the current evidence is suggesting that a single dose of vaccine, especially if you take something like the mRNA vaccine or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, uh, actually, Johnson, you only need one dose anyway. So if you just take that one dose as a booster, you do really well in getting strong protective antibodies. What has COVID-19 highlighted about the healthcare system in South Africa? When I look at the, the way the epidemic has spread, and when I look at what is it about our healthcare service that makes a difference uh, you know, in patients who have COVID-19, it really boils down to three things. Right? The first is you've got to have enough beds. You've got to have enough beds. And those beds have to be in dedicated COVID wards with the correct uh, infection control procedures and so on. Because the last thing you want is to spread the virus around in the hospital to other sick people. And so it's very important to have dedicated COVID wards with all the infection control. So that's the first. The second is you need oxygen. Oxygen saves lives. In the COVID pandemic, oxygen is your most powerful friend. You need it to live. If you don't have oxygen, people will die. It's as simple as that. If you, you know, we saw how, how important oxygen was when you looked at the situation in India, when they started running out of oxygen. Yes. Now, in South Africa, we did very detailed planning that ensured we had enough oxygen. We never ran out of oxygen. 
not in the first wave or the second wave, uh, and I don't think we'll run short of oxygen in our third wave because we've done very detailed planning. Now, we do have occasions where the smaller hospitals that don't have enough wards with piped oxygen. In other words, they are using the oxygen canisters. Uh, those are not a good idea because in a COVID situation, you need to give people large amounts of oxygen. So if you start using those canisters, they get, they get used up quite quickly. The oxygen gets used up quite quickly. You have to change those uh, quite often. So, and that's when you can sort of run out. So it's very important to have piped oxygen. And piped oxygen means you have a big storage tank in the hospital. Now, most hospitals routinely have this because those tanks are what delivers oxygen when patients are on the operating table and so on. So we usually have that in good supply. In South Africa, it's very carefully planned that we would have enough oxygen. The third thing you need is you need dedicated staff. You need nurses, doctors, specialists, technicians who can run all these machines and make sure that you get oxygen you cared for. Because those three things really ensure that we save lives. And with the right doctors, they will know what treatments you should get. They'll know to give you a steroid like dexamethasone to save your life. And so they'll know what to do. The way in which you, you deal with this pandemic in ensuring that those three things, right, that's beds, oxygen, and dedicated staff or experienced staff, is that when you have those three things, they have to be widely accessible. It's not good enough to have them only in big cities and not anywhere else. They need to be available to people. And so it's highlighting for us the differences in access, the differences that we have between urban, rural, between poor and rich, between provinces. For me, the thing that has hurt most is to see how if you live in the Eastern Cape, your access to healthcare services is severely compromised compared to if you lived in the Western Cape or KwaZulu-Natal, because the healthcare services in the Eastern Cape are collapsing. They, they are in a state of disrepair. And they're in disrepair because of incompetence, because of corruption. But you see that in our own country, your chance of survival, if you've got COVID, is better if you were in a neighboring province than in one that doesn't have a well-functioning healthcare service. Thank you. That's really insightful. Lastly, share with us three things that you've personally learned with your involvement uh, since you've been involved in terms of this uh, COVID pandemic? What are three things that you've personally learned from COVID-19? So I think the first thing that I've learned is that, you know, with just when you think you know uh, about this virus, 
it'll go and do something that tells you how little you know about this virus. <laughs> this is a difficult disease. We, there is so much we don't know. And there are so many people who go out there who think they are know-it-alls. And you'll hear, you know, even some of my fellow scientists, uh, when you hear them, they speak with such confidence. Oh, we know what's going to happen. This is going to happen. And that's when we should be doing this. And Oh, the, they did this all wrong. We know what the right thing is. I've learned that this virus is a great leveler because it's very hard to predict exactly what's going to happen. You can try and, you know, we can make some predictions. But it has taught me to be humble in, in the face of, and it, and it, you know, and, and adversity like a virus like this, in that we need to ensure that we always are informing people about the uncertainty of our knowledge on this virus. So the uncertainty that we deal with in terms of this virus is the first thing. The second thing for me is that in, in looking at this particular virus, I have been impressed at how through our collectiveness, we have been able to impact on this virus. I mean, it was very clear in the second wave. We had a terrible variant. It was spreading like wildfire. But people came together. They, they put on their masks. They, you know, sat in their houses and they, you know, followed the rules. And that second wave came down fast. It came down fast because we were willing to do the right things. And we did so as a collective. In other words, as a whole community. You can't do it just by individuals. It's got to be enough individuals in the community doing it. And the third, I have just marveled at how people have bandied together to help each other. Mm -hmm. How in, in, you know, when we were in level four, how when people were hungry, how people went out there to help their neighbors, how NGOs went out there to feed people, how the Solidarity Fund was created so that, you know, rich people gave money to help deal with this pandemic amongst the poor. And I saw that South Africans can move mountains. They can move mountains when they have to. I saw that. If you asked me in February, can you take the Cape Town Convention Center and convert it into a 600-bed hospital with oxygen at every bed? I would have told you, yeah, we can do that. It'll take about three or four years. <laughs> well, yes. I have to tell you, they did it in six weeks. How they did it, I have no idea. I have no idea. It is, to me, a marvel. And it is because people are committed. People want to solve the problem. I saw, how is it that our country's manufacturer of microwaves, stoves, and fridges, a company called DeFi, is now our biggest and only producer of ventilators in South Africa. Instead of rolling off microwaves from their production line, they are rolling out ventilators. I have to say, 
I just marvel. I marvel at how we can solve our problems when we put our minds to it, how we as a nation are incredibly powerful, even in the face of this virus. Professor Karim, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you on Thinking Out Loud. Thank you so much for your time. It's a great pleasure, Riaz. All the best. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share with family and friends. Till the next episode, bye for now. Thank you.